0: I really appreciate the opportunity to share my understanding of the importance of taking risks and facing our own weaknesses to achieve true happiness from a Buddhist, psychological, and personal perspective. When we became Buddhist in 1969, my wife and I were teenage hippies. On the day of her high school graduation, we took a huge risk and ran away from home seeking love. Peace, happiness, and in my case, freedom from responsibility. After months of eating brown rice and lentils and living living on a French friend's porch, we realized that we couldn't just survive on our ideals. Buddhism seemed like the perfect solution. We could become happy and all our dreams would come true. I rarely thought to ask what happiness was. I figured anything would be better than the... Sub- Severe depression and anguish I had suffered as a child and teenager. Because of my intense desire to avoid depression, I developed an underlying belief that the true objective of my Buddhist practice was to be happy all the time. That the enlightenment Nichiren, the founder of Nichiren Buddhism in 13th century Japan, was, spoke about was somehow wrapped up in an unshakable condition of happiness, a total absence of pain. Look at me, I would be able to proclaim nothing can upset my positive, upbeat attitude. I had a lot to learn. I was so frightened whenever I started to feel blue that I would do anything to get my smile back. My unhappiness, like a strong ocean undertow, was a constant impetus to chant more to strengthen my life. And over time, I could make and carry out strong determinations— have a warm, loving family, and build a successful business career. But on a different level, I still needed to deal with the reality of my sadness. Soon, two traumatic occurrences pushed me right over the edge. The first was the suicide of my good friend Gordon in the mid-90s. He had been my business mentor and had recently retired. His family and friends thought they knew him well, A successful businessman, he was always cheerful and full of great advice. So it frightened me that he could be harboring such overwhelming anguish that he saw no way to continue living. Obviously, he hadn't dealt with some significant issues in his life. Considering my own traumatic childhood, I began to wonder if I was in danger of making the same mistake. The second event was my wife being diagnosed in 1996 with multiple sclerosis or MS. This was a challenging time that tested and then reinforced our commitment to each other and our continued spiritual practice. Eventually, Trudy learned to walk again, and some of the pressure we had been under was relieved. We had each gone through tremendous personal growth because of this experience, however, About a year later, Trudy discovered me lying in the bathtub unable to move. I had fallen into an extremely depressed state, the kind of loneliness and helplessness I had experienced as a child and a teenager. It was at this point in my life that I began to understand the kind of grief that must have driven Gordon to end his life. It woke me up to the need to get help. How sad and ironic that his most significant gift to me ended up being his death. His suicide, like a persistent flashing red reminder, compelled me to find courage to do the work. Buddhism teaches that we should not shrink from the fact of death, but squarely confront it. Our contemporary culture has been described as one that seeks to avoid and deny fundamental question of our mortality. Mortality. It is the awareness of death, however, that compels us to examine our lives and to seek to live meaningfully. Death enables us to treasure life. It awakens us to the preciousness of each shared moment. In the struggle to navigate the sorrow of death, we can forge radiant treasure of fortitude in the depths of our being. Through that struggle, we become more aware of the dignity of life and more readily able to empathize with the suffering of others. With my chanting as a spiritual foundation and a terrific therapist, I was finally able to begin the painful but rewarding process of healing myself from the effects of my abusive childhood so that I could truly devote myself to living in the present. So in the same way that Trudy took medicine and went to a neurologist for her illness, I took medicine and went to a psychotherapist for mine. This wasn't and still isn't an easy process. I've had to push myself through many tears and painful memories. I discovered that the messages I assimilated as a child from an angry father and a disinterested mother greatly influenced my opinion of myself as an adult Many of the behaviors that had protected me in my early years were no longer necessary or even desirable, nor were they contributing to my true happiness. As part of learning (coughs) how to deal with childhood PTSD, I have also been learning to allow myself to feel joy without fear or guilt and to experience pain without panic, which makes my wife really happy. The essence of this is being able to live in the moment, something we are taught as Buddhists, but that, as you know, can be very difficult to achieve. The ever-present heaviness that has plagued me for 67 years has significantly diminished. There's no way to describe how wonderful this makes me feel, and it is proof that it is never too late to change our lives, and that many of life's treasured gifts are buried in the most painful and risky places. I'm so grateful that I could turn Gordon's death into such a meaningful gift. I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes by Buddhist scholar and our lay Buddhist organization president Daisaku Ikeda. He said, happiness is being able to experience profound joy that comes from never being defeated by problems in life. In fact, These challenges are a catalyst to deepen and expand our inner lives. Despite a culture of instant gratification that influences so much of modern living, happiness is not a quick fix attained overnight. Rather, it results from our daily efforts to manifest life's highest potentials, wisdom, compassion, courage, and vitality. While pursuing happiness, I also used to spend a considerable energy trying to reach an elusive there. There meaning anything good, a better job, a more pleasant boss, just a little more money. It was almost impossible for me to enjoy life as it was when I was so busy wishing I was somewhere else. This is also not true happiness. The belief that our happiness depends on some event, or situation happening in the future sets us up for unhappiness, especially when we consider that we are all bound by the cycle of birth, sickness, old age, and death. If we wait for a trouble-free life, our happiness will continue to elude us. Rather, the question is, how do we respond when confronted with the problems we will inevitably face? Eventually, I came to realize that true happiness is when I strive to do my human revolution those efforts I make to overcome myself and to help others. While financial and material wealth is desirable, it is the nature of our attachment to it that can become problematic. In other words, does our attachment create value in our lives? Does it contribute to our own and other people's absolute happiness? Or is it a lesser relative happiness? Through my many years of Buddhist practice, I've come to realize that it's spiritual wealth the inner treasures of the heart that really guide us to true happiness. Ikeda also said, the gratification of desires is not happiness. Genuine happiness can only be achieved when we transform our way of life from the unthinking pursuit of pleasure to one committed to enriching our inner lives. When we focus on being more rather than simply having more. In the sixth century, a Buddhist scholar in China, Tiantai, identified 10 worlds, 10 states or conditions of life that we experience within our lives, moving from one to the other at any moment, according to our interactions with our environment and with those around us. These conditions, which are listed in your program on a little sheet of paper, if you want to get that out, easier to follow along probably, These conditions are hell, hunger, animality, anger, tranquility, rapture, learning, realization, bodhisattva, and Buddhahood. You're probably familiar with most of these terms. Each of us possesses the potential to experience all ten from the prison-like despair and self-hatred of hell to the expansive joy and wisdom of Buddhahood. We each usually have one of these states that we revert to when faith faced with a stressful situation, right? You know people, some people that react to anger whenever there's any kind of challenge, some people that get really, really depressed, some people that become very animalistic, try to lord it over people that are weaker than them, and so on. Any happiness or satisfaction to be gained in the lower six worlds or states depends totally on unique external circumstances and is therefore transient and the subject to change. And if we're not careful, risks taken while in these conditions of life will not have a positive effect. This is also not true happiness. The seventh and eighth states, learning and realization, which is what we're engaged in right in this moment come about when we recognize that everything experienced in the six paths is impermanent and we begin to seek some lasting truth. Seeking the truth implies going out of our comfort zone to experience personal growth. However, since these states are self-focused, there's still a great potential for egotism. The ninth state of Bodhisattva indicates those who aspire to achieve enlightenment. And at the same time are equally determined to enable all other beings to do the same. Those in this state find their greatest satisfaction in altruistic behavior. The risks we take to help others results in the deepest personal happiness. And it makes me think of your church's social justice committees, which every UU church that I speak at has. And it's so, it's, I find it so inspiring. The state of Buddhahood, the 10th state, does not exist by itself, regardless of what you may have seen of historical Buddhism. It is not represented in reality by a statue of Buddha or by just some individual who is an enlightened person. While we revere those people, those great teachers of any faith, we each have a Buddha nature. So it represents an ordinary person awakened to the true nature of life, one who experiences absolute happiness and freedom, not separate from, but within the realities of daily existence. In other words, within the other nine conditions of life. It is characterized by wisdom, compassion, creativity, and life force. So the objective is to bring out the enlightened, positive aspects of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, This is, from a Buddhist perspective, true happiness. In other words, the condition of Buddhahood does not exist separate from our daily life. We can experience joy in a hellish prison or transform our anger to engage in a risky but crucial fight against injustice. We don't need to be the victim of our circumstances. The revolutionary aspect of Nichiren Buddhism is that it seeks to directly bring forth the energy of this enlightened nature of a Buddha to purify the more superficial layers of our five senses, our subconscious, and our karma. It is how, in the words of Nichiren, we become the master of our mind rather than letting our mind master us. So for Nichiren Buddhists, we chant nam myoho as some of you probably remember. And that's the engine that enables us to reveal our Buddha nature. As with many unfamiliar spiritual practices, chanting some strange words might seem outside someone's comfort zone or somewhat risky. Exactly. We're not quite ready to chant yet. Uh, <laughs> the optimism of youth, right? Myoho Renge Kyo is the title of the Lotus Sutra, which documents the last eight years of Shakyamuni's teachings, 2,500 years ago. There is a pronunciation guide in your program. The word Nam roughly means to dedicate oneself, in this case through the action of practicing Buddhism. Myoho means mystic. It's the essential law of life and its phenomenal manifestations which, like gravity, functions regardless of whether we believe in it. For instance, cause and effect. If you make a cause, you get an effect whether you believe in it or not. Renge symbolizes the lotus flower and the simultaneity of cause and effect. So for every cause, thought, word, or deed, we make a corresponding effect is stored in our life as karma, even if it doesn't manifest itself right away. So nobody gets away with anything, really. Finally, kyo is sutra, the truth expressed through the sound of one's voice or harmony or rhythm. So maybe we could say it just like several times together out loud, as loud as you'd like. Namyo yo ho rangay Namyo Nam yo ho rangay kyo, ho rangay kyo, ho rangay My wife says, always says if I was smart, I'd stop there. <laughs> but I'm not that smart. Consistent with our Buddhist concept of relative and absolute happiness, psychological research has also found that people in their late years whose primary focus in life has been the attainment of external goals such as wealth, property, fame, and status tend to be less happy. In general, they are said to experience Higher levels of anxiety suffer more illness and have less of a sense of fulfillment. On the other hand, people who have paid attention to treasures of the heart, their spiritual well-being report being much more satisfied with their lives. This is probably the main message I speak to a lot of high school freshman classes. This is the main message I like to give them, because if they can grasp this in freshman in high school, what a different life they would have. In The Progress Paradox, Greg Easterbrook draws upon three decades of wide-ranging research to make the assertion that while almost all material and physical aspects of Western life have vastly improved in the past century, most people feel less happy than in previous generations. So while pursuing physical and material fulfillment, what is most important is to develop the ability to make wise decisions, the courage to never give up, respect for oneself, and compassion for others. These are the attributes that give real meaning to our external endeavors and accomplishments. In a fascinating paper in the 2017 International Journal of Wellbeing, psychologist Ashley Buchanan, who lives in Australia and has that great accent when I talk to him, proposes bringing together two areas of research, a being well perspective from positive psychology, and a socially and ecologically oriented doing good perspective, being well, doing good. He gives the example of benefit mindset as everyday leaders who seek to be well and do good. Wouldn't that be refreshing? It is interesting to note that this is in complete accord with the teachings of Nichiren, which emphasize the need to practice every day for the happiness of oneself and others. In the July 2nd, 2013, Psychology Today, well being researchers Robert Biswa Diener and Todd Cashton stated, While we don't deny the importance of happiness, we've also concluded that a well lived life is more than just one in which you feel up. The good life is best construed as a matrix that includes happiness, occasional sadness, a sense of purpose, playfulness, and psychological flexibility, as well as autonomy, mastery, and belonging. Personally, I believe that true happiness is something close to the joy or sense of fulfillment and confidence that arises from our sense of mission to make the world a better place and from the ability to enjoy our life. Being happy is a sense of connectedness with everything around us. Daisaku Ikeda has said happiness is not found in a tranquil life free of storms and tempests. Real happiness is found in the struggles we undergo to realize our goals and our efforts to move forward. Now, I finally realize we don't believe that if people chant or meditate or pray, they will always be smiling and cheerful. Rather, they will be more fulfilled and happy with their lives. Lasting happiness comes from within and is a condition we can experience even when or because we're facing difficult difficulties. To quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, don't be timid and squeamish about your actions. All life is an experiment. The more experiments you make, the better. Even amidst the most trying times, happiness is not out of reach. By accepting small risks, we can move in the direction of our dreams and face our problems wisely and courageously. We can come to savor the greatest of all joys, the ability to live life with a deeper, stronger sense of confidence, appreciation, and hope. We have the power to change our destiny And become a source of positive change in our family, local community, and the entire world. In today's challenging times, it helps me to remember that hope, like happiness, is truly the state of my mind, not the state of the world. I repeat that to myself every morning, right after I see the news. I would say it again it's the state of my mind, not the state of the world. That's how I keep hopeful. This truth gives me confidence that each of us can build a happy life and make a positive difference in the world. Thank you so much for your kind attention and for having me again today. Thank you.